Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mason. Welcome to another episode of the Beyond the Album Cover podcast, where you get the backstories behind what goes on in the music industry from insiders that know the best. Right now with me, I have Mr. Courtney Anderson, music industry insider, jack of all trades, and co-host of the podcast. I'm going to let you finish with Amy Linden. Courtney, thank you for coming on. Howdy. Thank you for having me. No problem. So how are you holding up everything with COVID? Let's see. I'm bored. <laughs> I'm bored. I'm over it. But you know what? It's important that people stay healthy. Don't wear your mask. Wear your face covering. Don't let it be a political thing, folks. It's like there's a respiratory disease going around. So we got to do what we got to do. New York was really, really bad for a lot of months. And now I'm seeing that starting to happen in other places in the country. And that worries me because if people were here, I think they would have a completely different take. I mean, there's no, we went through hell. That's the only way I can put it. You know, it's not normal to wake up every day and you hear infection numbers that are really high and it's like 659 people died last night, 799 people died last night, 700 people. That's just not normal numbers to hear. And then when it starts becoming colleagues, people you know, and then family members, I lost family members. You know, it starts not being a story on the news. It becomes something else. So, you know, I'm holding up. I'm healthy, I'm alive, I'm here, I'm blessed, I'm grateful. It's a trying time. It's definitely something different. Yeah, it's definitely the new normal and with the DJs going on live or the streaming websites, it seems like the streaming sites plus the record industry is trying to find a way to monetize this recent new phenomenon, Club Coin. Well, what it is is, I think a lot of people don't realize is like platforms like Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, which has been better for the DJs actually, they all have deals with labels and publishing deals, which is why you notice some DJs go on and their set is never interrupted. And then you have other DJs going on. Like I've played a couple of times and it's constantly on Instagram being shut down and stopped. So, you know, it's challenging your time because you think about all of those people, right? Like, you know, I worked in the music industry for a lot of, lot of years and for the last few years in it, I really primarily focused on dance remixes in the club. None of my people are working. Like, yeah, there's some remixes who might be remixing records, but nobody's doing it at the same rate because there are no clubs open, really, anywhere. So you've got DJs who, for the foreseeable future, have no employment. You have all of the things that work around sort of live music. A lot of my friends who tour, touring managers, all of those tours have been pushed to 2021. It's a kind of a devastating time for live music in that segment of the music industry, especially the DJs. Yeah, I definitely agree because I have a lot of friends who are DJs said they lost out on gigs because of COVID and then my wife and I were supposed to go see the Bashy Boys here in Albuquerque in mm. October originally, but their tour got pushed back to next year, but at least they gave you the option of either keeping your ticket for the new date or, or getting a refund. A refund. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel that the Backstreet Boys are still touring and I really liked that last album that they had. I was like, okay, you guys are still making good songs. That's yeah, I like the DNA album, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, was a big hit on AC, yeah. and it just goes to show that if you got a brand, especially as an established act, you can just do an indie label, go out on tour yourself with brand recognition alone. Well, the biggest thing is having a very, very strong touring base. If you have a really strong touring base, that's where the money is right now, live music. You look at a lot of these artists are probably suffering because they're used to being on the road. They stay on the road. If you're talking about people who are depending solely on money coming from streaming, you see what the artists get versus what a label makes. Labels are making money hand over fist from streaming. 
artists are not making the same kind of money hand over fist. Where they make their money is, if you notice, in a lot of things that everybody's got some sort of a corporate affiliation with them because that's where the money is coming and being on the road. And now, as we see, being on the road is stopped until sometime in 2021. And that's going to be devastating for a lot of people who it's not about putting out a new record. It's say you're a heritage act and you stay on the road 200-something days out of the year. You know what I mean? It's devastating. It's a devastating blow into your income to have that go to a screeching halt because there's nowhere in the world you can go right now and say, well, touring is resuming over here. I'll go over here. It's just not happening. Right. And as of the taping of this podcast, Ralph Tresbant just released a brand-new single, All Mine, featuring Johnny Gill. So I look at an act like New Edition and all of the spinoff acts where their bread and butter comes from yeah. touring. The least Ralph just dropped the single. And, of course, BBD just did the the Garage Funk special and they're constantly out. So acts like that where they're constantly out on tour, it's like, hmm, how do I get this break? Exactly. And they're putting these songs out so that they have new material to sing on tour, right? You know, because it's not going to be the same as when they're in their 80s heyday. But, you know, you'll get some urban AC play and that chart is, it works. But that's also to help you sell tickets and to have new things because it's really hard to sing Poison every night. Yeah, it gets the audience hype, but if you're an artist, you know, having to sing your first album from 1980, whatever year that was, over and over and over and over, it gets tedious. You want something new to put in your show, you know, especially if you're an artist who keeps evolving. You know? The industry is not very kind as you get older and letting you evolve. It's like people want you to stay in a box, then they throw you away. But that's why a strong touring base is really, really important. You have right keeping your publishing and a strong touring base, and then you can set yourself up for a great future. Right, and as I've gotten older and my musical taste has grown up, that's where I respected Prince a lot more as a musician, where he wanted to do new stuff constantly every night while he was on tour and not just do the same hit off of Purple Rain, which is why he scrapped the European leg of the Purple Rain tour and went immediately to work on Around the World in a Day. Right, which was an amazing album. That's one of my favorite Prince albums. And, you know, that was so psychedelic when it came out. It was so different from Purple Rain. You know, it's interesting with Prince, right? Because I'm a huge Prince fan. So a lot of people who are huge Prince fans really started at the very beginning. I didn't start it for you. I started at the Prince album in 1979 with I Want to Be Your Lover and then into Dirty Mind, which to me is a masterpiece. And then you have Controversy and you know, all of those had, you know, minor hits, kind of levels of hits, great music. 1999 is considered, you know, the commercial breakthrough, right? That's the one where he puts out this ambitious double album. He's like, okay, you think my music, I want my music to be heard by everybody. And, you know, that's when he comes with his version of, I would say, a funk pop album. And it gives you Little Red Corvette, 1999. Those songs that we all know. And then we go into Purple Rain and then into Around the World in a Day. And then after Around the World in a Day, going into Sign of the Times, which is another amazing record. And remember, then he didn't tour the U.S. the Sign of the Times. He only toured Europe. Right, and that's where we got the concert film for Sign of the Times. And I remember right. being, I was born in 85, so definitely young to remember <laughs> you Prince were born. Day <laughs> I graduated high school. I know, make you sound all right, but um, thank you. This I remember. Over, it's been great. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but the Diamonds and Pearls era yeah. and Emancipation, I remember fully. But then I went back and visited his earlier catalog from the For You album, right. the self-titled album, Sign of the Times, Dirty Mind, Controversy. And you can just hear the progression. And that's um, the thing that's great about Prince, right? You discover him at a certain place and you're like, wow, this is great. And then when you realize this, all of this work before him, you go into it and you dig into it, you're like, there's so much to chew on, you know, from each album. It's great. Right, and let's not forget all the stuff that has been sitting in the vault for years, the unreleased Black Album and all the bootlegs that's been out. So he well, had the Black Album eventually got released. Because I have the Black Album. It, it eventually got released in the 90s, remember. It got released, and it's still out of print. And then they did a reissue of the vinyl a couple of years ago in the U.K., which is still kind of hard to find because once it came in the market, everybody bought them up. And, and it's one of those, if you ever see a copy of it, get it. And then the original Black Album, they have promo copies that are circulating around. They're worth thousands. One of my good friends is a huge, she's like the hugest print fan, and she actually has one of the promo black albums that was printed on white vinyl that's worth thousands of dollars. It's amazing. Wow, that's amazing to get your hands on that. So how did you get your foot into the music industry, and where did your love of music come from? You know, I grew up in a house where music was always playing. My mother's from North Carolina. My father was born in Harlem. So when I would get in my mom's car, she only listened to country music. So I grew up listening to country music. Then in my dad's car was BLS and jazz. He loved jazz and he loved all the other stuff. Then we would always go on the weekends to my Aunt house in Brooklyn and she and my mom were like good girlfriends. They went to Studio 54. They did a lot of stuff together. And her house is where I discovered Yoko Ono, Prince, Grace Jones. And then, you know, I started seeking out and going to clubs when I was really young. Like my first club I went to, I was 15 years old. And just living in New York at that time, radio was so different back then. Like, you would turn on WBLS and you would hear everything. 92 KTU, Carlos de Jesus, the dance station, you would hear everything. So... I didn't feel like everything was put in a box like it is now. This is pop. This is it. You heard everything. Like, the first time I heard Madonna was on WBLS, Frankie Crocker, playing everybody, you know? So just the fabric of being a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s in New York, music and that energy was always around. There was always a block party. There was stuff in the park. So just music was everywhere. So I get to college, and I ended up becoming, because I just knew about music, it just was something I knew. And I used to read Billboard as a kid. Don't ask me why. I thought I used to read a bunch of magazines, and Billboard would be one of them. I ended up, long story short, becoming the music director of the college radio station. I needed to take an internship, and I had an internship at Polygram, and that kind of got my feet wet. I didn't enjoy that experience all the way, but it got my feet wet to say, okay, I think you have a knack for this. And then I was off to the races. Right, and you mentioned your mom's from North Carolina. I'm originally from North Carolina. Where from North Carolina? A little town called, the country called Harrison Creek, right outside of Wilmington, and our family based in Wilmington and Harrison Creek. Okay, I am about two hours, three hours north of Wilmington in Northampton County, which is about four hours from Washington in D.C. and about an hour okay. 30 minutes from Richmond. Mm, nice. Yeah, so um, I did an interview years ago with Tom Bolton, and he was telling me stories about Studio 54's heyday and how they would have the velvet rope at the front, and people yeah. were making life decisions of, I'm sorry, babe, I'm going to leave you at this front because they're yeah. calling me in. It was the place everybody wanted to be. 
Right. I mean, people were sneaking in the air vent. And did you also visit any of the famous haunts during that day, like Dance Terrier, Roxy, oh, Fun House, Paradise Garage? Paradise Garage was my first nightclub. So my first nightclub was Paradise Garage. Please, I've been to Paradise Garage. I can't tell you how many nights I've spent at Roxy. I cannot tell you how many nights I've spent at Dance Terrier, including New Year's Eve at Dance Terrier area. The loft I didn't go to, that was a little before my time. But most clubs in New York from the 80s on, I've been to. Absolutely. Right. And what was your thoughts on the early rise of hip-hop? Because as disco was going on, hip-hop was emerging, and everybody who was more of the affluent, upwardly mobile type kind of looked down on it and said, eh, it's not going to last. Well, it changed everything. The tunnel, when it first opened, was a club music club, and their bigger night became their hip-hop night, which I believe was Sunday night, if I remember correctly. And then we used to go to another hip-hop club called The Underground that was in Union Square. But what I saw happen was, like, I'll give you a perfect example. In the 80s, all of the black gay clubs of New York played house music. They were house music clubs because house music and club music has its roots in soul music. It is soul music, which is why I always felt like the disco sucks backlash back to rock was a little bit of a racist thing. Like, we don't like that. It's too big. And all of a sudden, he killed all those records and all those acts because it really was black music and soul music. When hip-hop came, it gave people a choice and I noticed a lot of the black gay clubs and started splitting and having two rooms the house room and the hip hop room and the hip hop room would always be smaller and the house room would be the main room and as hip hop really grew that switched and it became the hip-hop room was the big room, and the house room was the smaller room. Amazing. And I remember listening to Questlove Supreme and telling stories about the Latin Quarters and how if you went in there, you had to make sure that you didn't have your fresh stuff on because you were going to get jacked if they saw it. The Latin Quarters, the Red Parrot, Copacabana, so much. But it was also an exciting time. It was like it was crazy, but... It was just the, it's so hard to describe just what that energy was like. Because I've not seen that in these new clubs. It's just different. It wasn't about tables and bottle service, which is what a lot of clubs became. I'll never forget being in Miami for the Winter Music Conference. And, you know, I was, I've been going to Winter Music Conference for 20 million years. And being at this club that they used to have called Mansion, and people would pay $100,000 for a table because it was David Guetta night. That kind of shit, you know. It wasn't like that. It was people went out to dance and party. And you could be, yeah, there was always a VIP section, but everybody was kind of mixed together. Like, I've been on the dance floor at the Palladium, and this one's right here, this one's right here. We're all together having this shared experience, you know? And now clubs and the sound systems are really important. Now I go to a lot of places, and the sound is shit. It's like sound is almost an afterthought to how many tables can we get in there because we want to sell bottles and we want to sell tables. And the energy used to be come in here and dance and sweat, buy your drinks and have a good time. Right. And did you ever attend BRE or Jack the Rapper? Yes, I did. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I got the book about Jack the Rapper. And man, the stories Ooh. in that book, man, it walls to talk. That's all I can say. Let me just say something about Jack the Rapper. <laughs> that and Freak. Freaknik used to be in, you know, you'd go with artists, and it was just insane. And Atlanta would be so turned out during Freaknik. It was nuts. I've heard the stories of some of the people who were uh, down at Freaknik during that time. Now, this was during a time where, like I said earlier, R&B and hip-hop wasn't really meeting in the middle, but that all changed. 
in nineteen. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't say say they were meeting in the middle. I think that they were hip hop was coming into the mainstream, right? And mm-hmm. so as it was coming into the mainstream, what started happening was we started seeing the artists merge together. And the perfect blend of that really is the whole Puffy era and Andre Harrell and Uptown Records, where you have like a Mary J. Blige who merged R&B and hip-hop and gave you this whole new sound. And then you got Teddy Riley and New Jack Swing. You saw the sounds kind of mix together and have a beat. They become mm-hmm. a new version of R&B, right? It kind of got updated from our parents' R&B to mm-hmm. our own generation's R&B. But there was always pure R&B in there, too. It just got harder for those artists. You know, any time in the music industry, when the tide starts to turn, it can become for difficult for artists who are primarily known in one way to kind of compete when a lot of music is geared toward young people and the way they promote it is geared toward young people. So it becomes a little difficult to keep your place when this whole new sound is coming. But we've seen different artists who did that successfully, and then you see some who were bulletproof. Like Luther Vandross, till the day he died, was Luther Vandross. And people wanted Luther Vandross to sound like Luther. They didn't want Luther making a hip-hop record. Right, and as you mentioned, it's tougher for older established acts when a younger sound come along to stay above water because I was listening to Romeo and Juliet by Blue Magic and it sounded yeah. like your uncles or deacons at your church trying to keep in step with the young people and it, to me right. it didn't Which is work. a mistake. You have to stay true to yourself and try to be authentic in it. If you try to just fit yourself into a box of what's going on, it doesn't work. If you find a way to, to really match it to what you do seamlessly, which is not as easy as it sounds, then you get that authentic moment and it's received better. Right. And was there a difference in the house music that was coming out of New York and Chicago? That's, that's the big debate, right? Because you have some people say house music started in New York. Some people say house music started in Chicago. I always believe, even though I'm from New York, house music started in Chicago. Now, Chicago just had, they were both fierce, right? But they were fierce in different ways. Chicago just had that sound, you know, Frankie Knuckles and the, the, the piano and the instrumentation, where New York was always going to come hard with those beats in a different way, where Chicago's like, almost like that two-step, you know, uh, 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 and New York was always going to come at you more like, bam, 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 but they merged well together, because that was also a burgeoning sound, and you know, the DJs went back and forth, and the artists were from all over, it's good times. Yeah, yeah, Jesse Saunders out of Chicago, Bad Boy Bill, Chippy, and then the the legendary radio station WBMX, which plays right. house music constantly. Now, you mentioned Madonna, and a lot of her earlier work was done by Mr. Jelly Bean Benitez, because I can remember when Holiday was being played, she got airplay not only on Top 40, but also on R&B stations, and then I was listening to an interview with Tony Cornelius, Don Cornelius' son, and he yeah. said that his dad regretted on missing Madonna and getting her on Soul Train. Right. So with Madonna, do you think that at the time people knew that she was going to be the megastar that she was? Uh, it was no, be- you can't predict that. You can't predict that kind of thing. You know, you can't predict that a Beyonce is going to become a Beyonce. You can't predict that a Beyonce. You cannot. That kind of fame is rare air. You hope for it. You wish for it. You see a lot of people working hard to try to be that famous. Somebody asked me the other day, what does it take? I'm like, it takes faith. It takes hard work, talent. And just a little bit of luck with the stars aligning. You know, it really, really does. It takes all of those things. You cannot create a superstar. It just right. happens. Who would say, nobody would have looked at Britney Spears when she was young. And, you know, Baby One More Time, all those things were cute, fun pop songs. She's got a very interesting voice, right? 
So you don't hear that voice and say, this is a voice that can travel around the world and is going to have people interested for decades. But she has, because the thing with her is there are people who loved her from when they were young, and they've grown with her. So they feel invested in her. There are people who have grown with Beyonce and Destiny's Child, and they feel invested in her. You know, so you just can't predict it. You can't. Like Madonna... For so many years, so you were born in 85, like, you don't know anything. Like, around Like a Virgin, which came out in 85, you know, becomes her big record. But even then, if you go back and read a lot of the press around her, and around her, it was always about she can't sing. There's a story, if you go on CNN and look, Madonna's Girly Show was in 1993. CNN has, back when they would do a 15-minute segment on something so dumb, like, is Madonna's career over? In 1993. <laughs> you know what I mean? In 1993, she's at the height of her career. But it's like, it's her career over. So no one could have ever predicted that she would be the one, you know, to outlast a lot of her contemporaries. Right. And you're definitely right about not predicting who's going to be a star in love because I had a chance to interview both Danny Wood from Because on the Block and Maurice Starr. And they were saying and how after the first album didn't do well, they had to convince the brass at Columbia to give us another shot. So they right. did Hank and Tough. Please Don't Go Girl was originally only pushed to R&B radio. It was staggering, but then a pop radio station in Florida played it by accident. It got the win of Columbia, and then that's when the snowball started to roll for them. Right. Definitely in which I find amazing. Now, being inside of the industry, how is it different with as far as the budgets for the pop department and the R&B department and the type of attention that they get from the label heads? They are very different. At least in my experience, they were different. You know, pop artists always got a bigger budget. They always did. They just did. You know, that was the reality. Now, I haven't been inside of a record label for a long time, so I can't tell you how that is split now. But in my head, I can probably say it's probably still different. You know, even though now, if you look at the charts, the pop charts, all the top ten is all like hip hop and rap records. But the way they spend money now is different. When I was working in the music industry, you know, dropping five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars on a music video was normal. Nobody just regularly drops that amount of money to create a music video anymore. And the attention is always going to be big in pop. I've worked in both. When I first got to Columbia Records, I worked in the black music side. I worked for the head of black music, Tony Anderson, and you know, then. When he left the company, I moved over to video promotion, which is on the pop side, on the pop side in the pop department, but we operated as our own department, and we worked everything, right? So you see the difference. But at the same time, at my era of Columbia Records was the Fugees, Lauren Hill, Destiny's Child. All of these things crossed over to the pop side, and they became big pop acts, so they all have priority. Like Lauren Hill was the entire company's priority during the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And I was actually one of the four label people at the MTV Unplugged painting because it was video promotion. Me and my boss, Gary, we worked it. And then her publicist, Miguel and Camille, who did our videos, they came and they were in the audience. But we were there. I was there from 1 o'clock in the afternoon to like 1 o'clock in the morning. You know, so you see there were certain people and certain artists that crossed that divide and they were a company-wide priority. Right. And speaking of 
of Columbia, I'm going to go back a little bit, talk about George Michael's Space album and how that album, it was massive. And I'm sure for the label, it was like, hmm, we can work this album across three separate formats, have the same success, and really not really have to do a lot of work because the album speaks for itself. That was before me at Columbia. That was before me at Columbia. So all of the George Michael stuff happened before I was at Columbia. Yeah, listen, George Michael was a pioneer in fighting for the freedom for what you wanted. Because what people don't realize is, so he has faith. Faith is a huge, huge worldwide record. He doesn't even go to the Grammys because he doesn't think he's going to win. He wins album of the year for faith. And... Of course, the label, like, especially in those times, if you've had success with this, they want another version of that. George Michael is a true artist. He's like, I don't want to give you another version of that. But there was supposed to be a Listen Without Prejudice Volume 2, and that was the album that was going to have all the up-tempos on it. But because of the legal fight, this is why we got, you know, Too Funky ended up on the Red Hot and Dance compilation, because Too Funky was supposed to be single from Listen Without Prejudice Volume 2. You know, he was standing up for artists, just like Prince did up for artists long before it was fashionable, and he paid a heavy cost and didn't come back to America to tour or promote a record for a very, very, very long time. And he didn't think that the audience would be there for him. When he came back to tour again, after not touring here for like 15 years, sold out every show, and we loved it. I went to see him at Madison Square Garden, and I will tell you, it was one of the best pop concerts. George Michael gives you everything you would want him to give, and he sounded amazing. Right, because I remember... After the Faith album exploded, he won two American Music Awards that year for Best R&B Album and R&B Artist, and he caught a lot of heat from the R&B establishment at that time. Some of the artists felt, hey, you know, we have Keith Sweat and Bobby Brown, who had right. huge years, and you have this guy here, whose album crossed over to us, got airplay on R&B stations, video yeah, but he has, like, you had, had number one hits on the R&B charts. So my thing is this, you know, that's when we start talking about you know, it becomes, all right, so we have George Michael, who everybody loves. He has these hits, and he charted on these charts, and the record is impactful. Does he not deserve it? Should it go to a black artist? You know, that becomes that thing, right? But the reverse is, I think a lot of times, because black artists feel like, all right, then we cross over into these pop categories. We have really huge hits, but we don't seem to win those pop awards. It's always that double standard, because I was looking at the documentary of Michael Jackson's making of the Off the Wall album, and how for the Grammys for that year it was only nominated for the R&B categories and I believe that was the motivation for Thriller where I'm going to make an album that crosses over to everybody not to be regulated to an R&B album well, I think that most people don't realize Beyonce has I believe 24 Grammys and I don't think most people realize if they pay attention most of them are in the R&B category in the rap song category. I believe Single Ladies, the album that got the Grammys for um, the first album, I believe, has some pop Grammys, and I Am Sasha Fierce, I believe Halo, Single Ladies, they have pop Grammys. All those other Grammys are in the urban categories. Now, I was talking with Amy, and she was telling me about your obsession, quote-unquote, with Sugar Babes. I listened to the push the button single that Dallas often did on them. Why is it yeah. that you think they didn't work over here in America? Because I don't think they really tried to work them. I think it was just a timing thing, which is really interesting, right? Because if you look at who they had writing 
music with them. They have Max Martin songs. I mean, Max Martin has written some of the biggest pop songs in the world. Dr. Luke songs, and we know he's a controversial figure, but back then, some of the biggest pop songs in the world. Dallas Austin songs, songs of a huge hit. And if you listen to them now and you think about when they came out, they completely fit what was happening here. Push the Button, I believe, and Hole in the Head, maybe tried to chart here, but very, very low. And they have a song from their Angels with Dirty Faces album called Round Round, which actually peaked at number two on the Billboard dance chart. You know, it, to me, it's a mystery that they didn't work because I think the way Destiny's Child worked around the world, Sugar Babes could have worked in the U.S. because the songs are there. If you go back and look at the catalog now, the songs are absolutely there. The production is absolutely there. But, you know, we're weird about the ones that we let come through and become hits here and the ones that we don't. But, right, yeah, they've been getting me through this whole pandemic. For some reason, I've been digging back into a lot of my old music and then this new Jesse Ware album, which is just amazing. And it's just been me and the Sugar Bears. They've got me through the whole pandemic. Right, because I was telling Amy, I was so happy once Craig David broke through over here with the Born to Do It album, but yeah. I wish that Damage would have broke through over here because I know they tried to push Take That in America right around when they broke up because that for right. was their only U.S. hit here and Bobby yeah, Williams right. ended up having a moderate success in the state. So do you think it was due to U.S. labels not really scouted for international talent and no, the fact it, that international labels didn't want to spend extra money to try to break them here in the state? No, I don't think that's it because the thing is international labels would love that, right? Because a lot of times you're licensing it out to the American company so the bulk of the money is coming back to you. I think it was radio and radio programmers at the time being like, this isn't ours and we're not playing it. I totally think it's kind of radio. See, we're talking about a time really where everything was, one, some of it was before the internet really was popping in the same way. And promote, there was no social media. There was none of that. It was the old school going to radio stations, doing old school promotion. And I think they weren't American acts and, and the American companies didn't take them seriously because, you know, radio was are going to take it seriously. And it costs a lot of money to promote records and pop radio. People do not realize how much it costs to have a pop hit. It, you spend so much money, and I don't think they were trying to make those investments. I mean, you look back now, there's a lot of things that could have worked in a lot of places, right? And you're like, why didn't this take off? But it's just one of those things. But all of those acts, right? Take that and still take that. They still, every time they come back, they tour arenas and sell out all over the UK and where they play. Mm, yeah, and I was thinking about the UK Urban Acts. There wasn't really a lot of representation of UK R&B on top of the pop scale. That's pretty much primarily pop outlet over there in Britain and how in 1990 they didn't get their first commercial R&B station. Before that, it was Underground, which I found yeah. shocking. Yeah. Well, I don't know why you find it shocking. There are black people who live there, but they're not a black country. You know what I mean? You think about a lot of Europe, they're not black countries. They are people of color that live in those countries. So, you know, but black music has always been popular. So we see it more now. You see a lot of these artists. Like right now, St. John's Roses was huge in the UK. That song was number one for like five weeks. The Weekend's Blinding Light was number one for like five weeks. The Baby's Rockstar was number one 
for six weeks. So, you know, the world is changing. The Internet has definitely helped with that because the visibility and the way you can promote yourself is different. They're not those walls. You don't have to go through the same gatekeepers. Now everything gets put on a streaming service. While radio definitely will give you an impact and an audience, you don't need it the same way. Your plan doesn't have to revolve around, we're going to go to radio, we're going to go on a promo tour. Back then it was like a two-week promo tour which album came out. The first week you were all over the U.S., you'd be at radio, 500 radio stations a week. You'd be doing all kinds of TV that week. Then the next week you were going to Europe to do it all over again and go all over Europe. Now, with everything being put on a digital platform, you can reach all of those people differently. They get to see you. They get to vibe. It's easier accessibility to the music. And, you know, I think it's better for artists. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the industry is still struggling to try to keep up with the changing times or they've adapted quickly? Listen, people in the streets and the kids are always going to be a step ahead. The industry's biggest mistake was when Napster came along and the MP3 came along. This technology was so new and they're like, people are stealing music. They spent so many years trying to fight it, that's what put them all the way behind us. Instead of having a foresight saying, oh shit, this is here, this is here, we need to figure out how to work within this because this is the future, time is spent being like, we got to shut this down, shut this site down, now shut up Kazaa, shut this one, shut it, shut it, shut it, and the kids were already like, oh, we can get this for free, and now music can leak, and I can have your unreleased demos, and, you know, they've wasted too much time. But I think they've gotten better at figuring out that digital is it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I can remember spending my hard-earned 20 bucks at Camelot or Sam Goody and say, well, I'm not going to pay this much for a CD when I only like two or three songs. Right, which I hate. You know, I do hate that. Because I do think if you're an artist who puts out a body of work, I understand people being able to pick and choose, but if I've created a body of work, I want you to listen to this body of work and have the body of work. I don't want you to be like, well, I bought tracks two, four, and six of your body of work. It's weird because that's the case by singles. But you love these artists, support them. You want them to still be around, buy their albums. It takes a lot of time and energy to create an album. Like there's certain artists, it's like I've never heard of anybody saying I didn't buy Adele's whole album. I just picked through the songs I like. I've never heard anybody say, well, I didn't just get the whole Beyonce album. I just got the two songs I like. There's certain people that everybody just wants to hear all the work. I'm like, if somebody takes the time and you really like them and they're creating a body of work, then appreciate the body of work. They're not right. all going to be the best. You know what I mean? But I try to support every artist that I like. If y'all like you, I'm rocking with your album. I agree. I'm a music head. I like to listen to albums from beginning to end and then judge it. Now, have you caught season two of American Soul on BET? No. All right. I well, love season one. <laughs> well, well, relating to Soul Train and how the rise of rap, Don Canis wasn't really a fan of hip-hop when it was coming on because that wasn't his era. But once he saw that, hey, it's what my dancers like, I have to go with it from a business standpoint. Right. If you want to stay around, you have to change with them. Entertainment is an evolving business. And entertainment, a lot of times, is focused on the younger Americans because they're the ones who are going to still want to go out to the concerts and going out to the club. So, yeah, you know, you have to stay with your finger on the pulse of what 
the people are doing. You know, if you don't do that, you're going to be dead in the water. Right. And are you surprised at the rise of K-pop and the explosion of BTS here in the States? No, I'm not. Because with the rise of the internet, listen, music is a universal language. It's a universal language. We go through phases all of the time where groups and girls always need a boy group to love. Look through history. From the Beatles and before to B2K to NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, girls always need that group of boys this was my boyfriend I love him I want to pin the posters up in the wall it doesn't matter if it's digital if it's year 2020 2021 or 1990 or 1980 it's the same concept mm-hmm. I agree same game different names yeah same games different names now you mentioned earlier WBLS and KTU WBLS uh, it was ran by the late great Frankie Crocker WKTU you had the personalities like Paco Carlos de Jesus so I want you to talk about the impact that the Latin rascals made on music. Oh, well, you know, especially for certain communities, right? Freestyle, especially in New York, in the Latin and the Italian communities, because those were the two biggest audiences for freestyle music. It just was a full, it was a moment in time. It was how the streets of New York sounded, and for a second, a lot of those freestyle artists suddenly went from being on these independent labels to getting major label deals, like the Cover Girls ended up on Epic, Naomi ended up on Epic, Sweet Sensations albums came out through Columbia, and they were having big hit records, platinum records, gold records, top 10 singles, number one singles. You know, it was a big moment in time and it was great, you know. I still love freestyle music. Yeah, I love freestyle well, Joyce Sims and all yeah, of that. Joyce Sims and New York, New York Girls, Sleeping Bag Records, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. All in all, Lifetime Love, those songs are considered classic. Right, and what I found amazing about what the Latin Rascals was doing with their mixes back in the mid-80s was the fact that all of it was done on reel to reel and splice tape and how tight it was. Right, right. Well, you gotta remember back then everything wasn't as super digital as it is now, you know? Like now, you can record, you have the mic, you can record in your house. Soundproof that room, come in there with your equipment, pull out your mic and record directly into your computer. That's what technology has done. Right, it definitely made it a lot easier because I was looking at a video piece on the Red Bull Music Academy's YouTube page and Ted Courier was talking about how he had to live in an area where they weren't a lot of neighbors so they could crank it up and be able to have everything ready for his mixes and then the impact of Merlin Bob, Tony Humphreys on BLS and their dance party. I mean, dance music, house music, doesn't really get enough credit, underappreciated, but it really exploded overseas. Well, here's the difference. It exploded here in the clubs. Dance music has always been more appreciated in Europe. Dance music was pop music in Europe. Dance music stopped being pop music in the U.S. for a while. So over there, they never lost it being dance music, which is why you'll see sometimes the American single for American artists in that period was one way, and some of the remixes would be the single version in the U.K. and Europe because they appreciated dance music more. And here, it wouldn't get played on mainstream radio. And, you know, we're talking 80s and 90s artists, the radio you wanted to be played on the radio. There was no internet the same way to promote your record. Like, if you weren't on the radio, no one was hearing your record. Mm-hmm. And this year, BT turns 40. Tell me, what do you think about, on you, the impact of BT? You know, I think it was important because MTV, for a very long time, when they came out, they were the game in town, but you could not see black artists. And then when you did see black artists, you saw Michael Jackson, Tina Turner, Prince. Those are the top-tier black artists. 
What about everybody else? You know, there needed to be a place for those R&B artists like you were talking about earlier, and those hip-hop artists, and those underground artists. So BT served a real service and purpose for the community because there were a lot of people making records that just would not have been seen. So there needed to be a place for them to be seen. Like, what most people don't realize is TRL for MTV got all the props and the prestige of being TRL and place to go when your record comes out and they were in Times Square. You know, there was the whole fervor of TRL. The higher rated show was always 106 in part on paper because that is also for black people and black kids. They tuned into that show every day and the ratings were really high. Yeah, I was one of them. I watched both shows actually and then to go even further back to Video Soul with Donnie Simpson and how he was able to have that smooth charisma about him and also have that mix of where you're not just going to hear your Luthers, your Anitas, you're going to hear your BBDs, your New Editions, your LL Cool. Well, Donnie is a radio man. So Donnie knows music and Donnie was a radio man. He was very respected. So, you know, he understood. It was Donnie and Sherry remember it was like one of like video soul was the lick and shout out to Kevin Taylor my boy Kevin who I met when he was the music director at BET you know Kevin was a big part of that because Kevin was really smart and really musically open you know and definitely understood and still understands that mix of what makes music so great so like a lot of things got a shot and got on the air because folks like that understood the importance of what BET was and that those artists needed a home that they were not going to get on MTV. Right, and then thinking about now how the world is smaller because the internet and everything being on demand, you pay for what you want. I think the box was an early precursor to that because you call that 900 number, you pay that fee for what video you wanted, then based on what region you were in, you had customizable video selection right. for the box. So I think the box doesn't really get enough credit for what they were doing. Also, Uncle Ralph McDaniels and Video Music video Box. Video Music Box is legendary. Video Music Box was the place you didn't have to have cable because remember we think now about cable when it's in every household that's not how it was when cable first came around first of all in New York cable was only in Manhattan for years when I was growing up there wasn't cable in Queens we had an HBO antenna so we had singular HBO but there was not cable everywhere that came along later. So, for a lot of people, there was a channel in New York called U68, Channel 68 that showed music videos. There was the box that was on the over-air channel that you used to call in and watch your videos. And then you had Video Music Box, which I got to work a little bit when I worked in video promotion at Columbia. You know, and all those artists, hip-hop artists, wanted to go on Video Music Box. Ralph McDaniel was very respected. You wanted to be interviewed by Ralph McDaniels. You felt like you got to a certain place when you got to be on Video Music Box and talk to Ralph McDaniels because it was a place for all the hip-hop, the harder hip-hop, hip-hop from all parts of the country that you were not going to see in other places. Yeah, because I either read or seen somewhere that Ralph McDaniels was talking about how he pitched Video Music Box to MTV before they traded Yo and they passed on it. Right. And Yo I think to me really increased rap mainstream nationwide exposure because getting into areas where there wasn't really an R&B or rap station at that time and the only way you got it was you had friends that were living in areas where you would get it and they would probably mail you tapes 
And then Yo! immediately became the biggest show on MTV, which shows you there was a hunger for it, right? People always try to say, oh, we don't do this because of our audience, but Yo! immediately became, like, the biggest show on MTV. Right, and another big show during that time on MTV was Club MTV that was hosted by Downtown Julie Brown, which was actually shot at the Palladium, I believe. At the Palladium. And Julie Brown, she got shouted out in EPMD's Headbanger by Eric Sermon, and I thought that that was a good time. The 90s, to me, it was a great meshing of different genres where if you look at the Hot 100 on Billboard, you would see artists and songs from different genres and they were all meshed and Top 40 was like that as well and then as the decades go on and on we tend to get a little bit more it got more segregated Mm -hmm. absolutely right and it also feels like too with artists paying these companies for their platform usage it almost seems like the game is still the same but it just moved to a different space gotta pay the price absolutely because I used to work in radio back in North Carolina and one of the former jocks told me that in order for a record by a company to get pushed one promoter said I'll give you a mattress Tom Moulton told me about some people were getting you know FedEx envelopes with birthday cards with various goodies in it you don't remember like please there was vacations electro just to ask you, I don't know how much I can say. We used to have the promotion closet back in the day, and there was so much stuff in it. You know, especially working at Sony. But remember, then there became the big payola scandal, and that's what kind of changed how that... I'm sure things happened in a way, but it changed drastically after the payola scandal, and you realize how much people were doing to get these records played, and how much money was being spent, and vacations, and all kinds of things. The entertainment business is not for the faint of heart, okay? A lot of shit goes down. Right. It's definitely a lot of wolves, you know, and palms got to be greased because as we saw with the payola scandal, it destroyed Alan Freed's career. But once Dick Clark gave up names and all of that, he went unscathed. So pretty much it's the same game, different space, and it's a great time for creatives because there's no need for a middleman anymore. Like how back in the day you had to go through a label or you had fan clubs where now fans could go directly straight to the artist themselves. Yes, they can. You can reach out directly to artists themselves. You know, listen, but there are some people who need that support, right? Because when you go out on your own, it's really expensive to put out a record. Like, what is your goal? Are you putting out this record because you want it to be something you can tour off of and do that? You can do that. And then there's some who need all of that sort of big promotion, and that gets really expensive very fast. Suddenly you're paying for all your music videos up front. You're paying for the promotion to radio and all of that, and it becomes an expensive endeavor. It's not impossible. And listen, you can self-release records. This is where it comes back down to a strong touring base. If you go out and you're independent and you have a strong touring base and you're using these records to go out and you book your shows, you stay on the road and you stay booked, more power to you. Right. So like I was stating earlier, it's definitely a great time if you're an established act where if you already get the catalog and the brand recognition, you can easily put out an album and tour and get most of the money. Right. So how did you end up hooking up with Amy and the formation of I'm Gonna Let You Finish? Well, I've known Amy 
for a bunch of years. I was retired from the music industry, and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I've done it for a long time. It's changed. Let somebody else do it. I'm tired. I'm over it. And I was just trying to figure out what to do next, and I wanted to start a show. And at first, it was going to be a solo show. And then I thought, it'd be good to have somebody to bounce off of. And I was speaking to a colleague who said, you know, Amy was talking about, Amy used to have a podcast years ago. That Amy wants to start out another podcast, and she wants a partner, and then we connected, and we had a great phone conversation. We did a couple of practice runs of shows, and we just tried it, and it's been growing from there. And with your guys' experience within the music industry, you have talk on that, pop culture. I've listened to the show. I'm a huge fan of the show. I found it interesting to you guys' take on the whole NASCAR situation, and I really enjoyed that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Tell your people, listen up, guys, follow us, and I'm going to let you finish. We're on all of the places that you listen to podcasts, and we have a great Facebook page where we're constantly, we're on there all of the time, several times a day, putting stuff up and just talking about shit. And give the people the link for the Facebook page where they can follow? Yes, I'm going to let you finish, all one word. And is it the same name for all your other social media handles for Twitter, Instagram, for the show? Well, for Twitter, weird. We couldn't get I'ma Let You Finish. I guess it was taken. So it's Finish I'ma on Twitter. I hate that. But on uh, Instagram, it's I'ma Let You Finish NY. And, you know, we're really active on the social media. All right. So definitely keep up on that. Like Courtney said, it's available on all podcast platforms. Follow them. Listen. Tell a friend. Spread the word. Do you have any shout-outs you want to give before we conclude this interview? I just want to shout-out to my partner, Amy. And I also want to shout-out to Jess. Everybody in New York, we survived some crazy shit. Keep your head up. Keep strong. And I want to say to all you young people out there who are really interested in music and the music industry, it's not enough to just be talented. This is really important. Know the business. It is a business. It is very easy to come in and have some success really early, but if you want to maintain and you really are serious about having a career, it is a business and you need to know it. Know every aspect of it. That is how you succeed. That is how you have a long career. It is not a fly by the seat of your pants. You must, must, must know the business and be on your business. In that way, you will set yourself for, you know, success. But if you don't know the business, if you just think talent is enough, you'll be chewed up and spit out. Definitely that. And look at all the stories you've seen on Unsung behind the music of artists who signed bad deals, don't have no money to show mm -hmm. for it. They got all the publishing taken away when they signed that deal. Mm -hmm. So definitely don't go for the okie doke and don't fall for a big red contract. Let me yes. just say this because I want to do a thing. Because I have noticed that I'm really proud of a lot of these younger artists because they seem to have gotten that memo and they're more financially fluid and they're more knowledgeable and not just going into it, signing blindly these contracts that take away their money. Key, never sign away publishing. You always fight for publishing and you keep your publishing. The publishing is the thing that will keep you from working in Walmart when you're older. Okay? That's my message to all of you out there. And a little bit of advice, kitties. Write a great Christmas song because if you can write a good Christmas <laughs> song, that is house money where it's going to get it's played every year. You're going to be eating good. I was at Columbia. I worked that first album. Okay, the first Christmas album. You know, we put out the Christmas album. No one thought it would do that. No one. It was like in between records. I believe it's in between Music Box and Daydream. No one thought 25 years later, All I Want for Christmas would go number one, be top ten. Look at Wham. They have two modern Christmas classic songs. 
Wham's Last Christmas did charts every year and gets played, and all of them for Christmas. And I think the one that is starting to come up also is Kelly Clarkson's. What's the one? Whatever the name of that one is. But I love that. And every time I hear that at Christmas, I'm like, I feel like this is your version of All I Want, because it gets played more and more and more every year. So you're right. If you could write a great Christmas song that captures all, because you know a lot of people put out Christmas albums. Not everybody has a hit out of it. But if you could write a great Christmas song, it's the gift that will keep giving every year. Yep, it will pay for kids' college funds. And those two songs are up there with the Temptations Christmas album. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Courtney Anderson, music industry extraordinaire and one half of the duo of the podcast. I'm going to let you finish. Courtney, thank you so very much for doing this interview with me. Thank you, Drill.